Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our primary text today will be verse 2. And if you're visiting today, I'd like to welcome you again. Uh, we are glad to have you worshiping with us today. Uh, I am Pastor Rusty, and I am not uh, the primary preacher uh, on the usual. Uh, Pastor Matt is taking an extended uh, period of rest this month. It's been my pleasure to fill the pulpit the past four weeks. And so uh, we find ourselves in our towards the end of our series for the summer of Habits of Grace, and in Habits of Grace, we are talking about three primary streams. Uh, as you saw in the bumper, we are talking about really the three streams of grace that God has given us. Now, when we talk about giving grace or getting grace or means of grace, those kinds of phrases, we're not talking about grace that leads unto salvation in the accruing sense. What we're talking about is those that are believers, those that are saved, are living in the ongoing grace of God. This is not meritorious. It doesn't give you salvation. It does indeed help sustain it. Uh, but we are talking about how do I live a life that I can, first of all, enjoy Jesus, but how do I live a life in the church, in the graces that God has given me? One of the things that kind of led us into this series is people often will say, well, I need some grace from God to do whatever. I need more grace from God in order to have this happen. I need fresh grace from God in order to see this happen in my life. And indeed, the issue is God has already given us three primary streams of grace. And we're told to get in the stream soak in the stream, be in the path of God's grace, the conduits that he has already provided to give us grace. God will not give us grace outside of those things that he has already given us. And so if we need grace in our lives, we find it as we saw in the word, in prayer, and in the body. We have his voice, the word, we have his ear in prayer, and we have his body in our community, the church. And so we are in that third stream today, uh, having started it last week. We are in this idea of community, of what the church is together. And last week we talked about, really in general, what community is. It was kind of the kickoff for that, this last leg of the journey. But also we talked about the primary way that we see community grow, and that's in its caring for each other and by listening, being good listeners, and not listening to the sermon primarily. Of course, there's implications for that, and we're going to talk more about that today. But in listening to each other, looking to your left, looking to your right, knowing the people in your life intimately and caring for them, because we are the instruments of rescue for one another. We saw in Hebrews that it is not usually the person who is wayward that brings themselves back. It is those that are around them that go and rescue their brother and bring them back home. And so we find ourselves today continuing in this community uh, session, and we are going to be talking about enjoying Jesus through grace in the pulpit. Uh, it was our desire to have an older gentleman, uh, most of you know him, Jim Corber, uh, fill the pulpit today. Unfortunately, he was unable to. Um, and so it's probably also a good thing that it's not Matt talking about preaching. Uh, you give a dog a bone, I mean, he will, he will go for that one for a long time. Um, 
And so it, it falls to me to, to preach on this, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm excited about that. Uh, one of the things with preaching, though, is that it is so broad, and it would be, particularly for me, who I enjoy researching and reading, I just want to make my like entire sermon just quotes from, from all the great preachers and just let that be it. Um, and so I will indulge in that a little bit, but uh, that's not the entirety. We want to try to pare down into something very particular, uh, and I think our title does help with that. How does the pulpit give grace to allow us to enjoy Jesus most fully? And what is the point of preaching? So really, we have kind of two questions today that we want to get after. You can write these down if you want. Uh, we'll talk about them in succession. The first is, why is preaching so prominent in the life of the church? Uh, either this week or next week, we're going to be talking about corporate worship. Uh, the idea of us, the church, gathered together, and that particularly being the, the press. Uh, but inside of that, a large portion of what we are doing here today is indeed what I'm doing. Right? Out of about an hour and a half, 45 minutes <laughs> service, an hour of that is filled with preaching of the word, right? Why is that the case? Why is preaching so prominent in the life of the church? Why do our rhythms such as Renovate Us and DNA and our house gatherings all revolve around the sermon, the preached word? The second question is this. What is the purpose or the effects of biblical preaching? And so having established why it is indeed the way it is, what does it accomplish? What does it do? And so let's read our text today. We're going to be blowing up the context a little bit to help us parachute into this passage. We prefer to walk through books, and we will be doing that again in the fall here in a few weeks. Uh, but for today, we are dropping into 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, and let's start in verse 10 together, and we will uh, read our passage for the day. Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. We, we read all about these just not long ago when we went through Acts, right? Which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray together. Father, as we are indulging in this final stream of grace, of community, I pray that this morning as we are gathered here together, we sit humbly before your word. Father, it's not the proclaimer, but it is the message. 
that bears weight on us. It is the word that we are looking to today. And it is the word proclaimed, Father, that we pray will bring grace to our hearts and to our lives. And Father, you would help soften our hearts towards you, that we would enjoy you and your son all the more. Father, I pray for clarity today. I pray for understanding of your text. And Father, I pray that I deliver faithfully what you would have for our congregation. I pray this in Jesus' name. First thing I want you to see today is that the life we need to worship authentically comes by the word. The life that we need to worship authentically comes by the word. In our gathered congregation on Sundays, with the question of why is preaching so prominent in that gathering, we understand that we come together to worship. We come together to worship. And in fact, it's one of the identities that we talk about here, worshipers, is our, one of our primary identities. And so if we're going to start with understanding what preaching is for, why is it so prominent, then we need to remember why we gather. That is for worship. And worship depends utterly on the spiritual miracle of the new birth and the ongoing work of reawakening faith. And these miracles God does by the word. Right? We see in this passage in chapter 3, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, catch this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. More explicitly in 1 Peter 1.23, it says, You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. New birth is worked by God through the word. And so if we are going to be talking about worship together and we want a life of authentic worship, it comes by the word. No life, no worship. No word, no life. In order for us to have life, it comes through the rebirth, the first hearing of the word, and it comes through the ongoing reawakening faith that comes from hearing the word. And so it's the constant reawakening of faith Sunday after Sunday that comes by hearing the word of Christ. In Romans 10:17, we see that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so for the Protestant church, for us at Renovation, we put the Word of God in the most prominent place in corporate worship because worship is a seeing and a savoring of God Himself. And God reveals Himself as the Word and by the Word. As we talked about primarily in the first stream of grace, as we talked about we have His voice, the Word, God has spoken. Not only has He spoken, but He has revealed Himself. As we talked about before, imagine the the accommodation that the God of the universe had to make in order for us to not only actually be able to hear him, but to understand who he is. That is incredible. It's something that we forget far too often. God has revealed himself as the word and by the word. So in particular, God does his works in the world by his word. And he gives new life by his word. And he awakens faith by his word. Regeneration comes purely and solely because of the work of the word in our lives. Without the word of God, there would be no life. There would be no faith. There would be no work, 
no revelation, and no worship. We cannot know God apart from his word. And so the word of God is to worship as air is to breathing. And so when we ask the question, why is preaching so prominent in the life of the church? We can ask the question, what else would you fill this time with? And on what authority? If we have come together to worship, what other authority calls us to true, authentic worship? The only thing capable of pointing us in the right direction is the word of God. He has revealed himself as the word, and he has given us the word as a revelation. And so really there are two prominent primary reasons for the place of preaching and worship that kind of go deeper than this in a sense. They have to do with the twofold essence of worship. Understanding God, and for you Piper fans, delighting in God, right? Understanding God and delighting in God. Jonathan Edwards explains God's goal in worship, that is worship in general, but of course certainly corporate worship like this. God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. That's the accommodation that we already talked about. God has appeared to our understanding. We can know him. We can know him as he is. That's incredible. Number two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestation which he makes of himself. He's communicated himself to our hearts. And we rejoice, we respond in delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. So to break it down for us, there are two parts to true worship, always. You can say it in two different pairs. There's seeing God and there's savoring God. You can't separate them. You must see him to actually savor him. And if you don't savor him when you see him, then you insult him. This isn't foreign to us. The language shouldn't make us wonder. This is the same as a well-prepared meal. It's hard to savor that which you can't see. You can think about it, but then you start to see it in your mind. You've experienced it before, as we talked about last week. You see an amazing meal and you start to crave it, right? What if you see this amazing meal and you don't savor it? Is that insulting to that one who prepared it? Certainly. I love to cook. I am our family's primary cook. I do it all the time, and I enjoy making good food. There's, there's room for selfishness in that. I like to eat good food. The other part, though, is I want to see my family enjoy it. And if they don't enjoy it, then I'm, I'm a little hurt, right? I'm disappointed. I'm like, ah, I could have done better. It would be insulting to me for them to not enjoy it. Now, that has a lot to do with my skill, of course. But when we talk about the transition of this analogy to God, God is perfect in all his being. And so for us to see God as he truly is, to see him in the word and to not savor him is insulting. Another pair would be this. In worship, there is always understanding with the mind, and then there is always feeling in the heart. Understanding must always be the foundation of feeling, or all we have is baseless emotionalism, right? But understanding of God that doesn't give rise to feeling for God becomes mere intellectualism and deadness. This is why the Bible continually 
calls us to think and consider and meditate and remember on the one hand and to rejoice, fear, and mourn, and delight, and hope, and be glad on the other hand. For me, it is easy for me to fall into simple intellectualism and deadness. <clears throat> One of the biggest journeys for me about three, three and a half years ago was through the idea of joy. We've talked about that before. For me, the Christian life, pastoring, was duty. And if there was joy, then that was the icing on the cake. Hebrews thirteen seventeen gives a, a sense in which it's, if it becomes joy, then that's the best outcome. But it's not the only outcome. And so I need to be okay to just do it as duty. And I was joyless in my faith. I knew lots, but it did not give rise to feelings. Now, it can't simply be feelings. Some of you may struggle on the other side where you have lots of feelings, but you don't know God. You have not seen him truly because you don't actually know. There is understanding with feeling. It is always paired together. Both are essential for worship. And preaching is the form that the word of God takes in worship because true preaching is the kind of speech that consistently unites these two aspects of worship, both in the way it is done and in the aims that it has. Now, this one is done appropriately. I'm by far a better teacher than I am a preacher. I greatly enjoy preaching, uh, and I, I love doing it, but I'm more gifted in teaching, and there is a distinction. For me, I like to teach. I like to provide information. I, I often resort to the fact that I think information will change the outcome of your life. And for me, it often does. But that's not the case. That's not the case because our life is lived by faith, not by simple knowing. And in teaching, I have the opportunity to provide laws. I can work through things systematically. I can appeal to the mind. I can appeal to reason. I can appeal to logic, all of these things. But in preaching, there's something altogether different that sets it apart from teaching. Preaching in the Word of God is that of proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the message of Christ and Christ crucified. As Paul says, we resorted to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. We've taught you all of the foundations of the faith that Jesus came, that He lived a perfect life, that He died, that He rose again, that He's lifted on high, and that one day He will come back to judge the living and the dead. That is the message that comes from proclamation of the Word and preaching. And it is very easy for me to miss that proclamation and fall into teaching. But Paul has commanded Timothy to preach. And preach, to proclaim, is to unite this idea of the knowing of God with the savoring of God. My preaching often falls into more of an appeal type manner. I'm appealing to you. I am crying out for you to consider the value of that which I proclaim. And talking about prayer several weeks ago, I want you to know that you sit at the feet of the king of the universe. And that is a proclamation of the goodness of Jesus Christ. That he has made a way for us into the throne room of God and we sit at the throne of grace. To teach it would be to simply let you know that that's indeed an option. I want you to know and savor and see God. When I talk about community, I want you to see and know and savor the value of the body bought by his blood, that you land on each other, you lean on each other, you live by each other. 
We don't live for ourselves. We live as kingdom's citizens. And so when we fast and we pray, we do such as kingdom citizens. Preaching unites this knowing God and savoring him. And so for us to live and worship authentically, it has to come by the word. And it comes through the proclaimed word. And so that is why preaching is so prominent in the life of the church. But then there's the greater question of, that we started to allude to, what is the purposes or effects of biblical preaching? What is it designed to accomplish? What does really set it apart from teaching? And so the next thing and where we will reside for the remainder of our time is that biblical preaching gives life for faithfulness. Biblical preaching gives life for faithfulness. It is the word, God's word, which God has spoken. Paul doesn't have to specify any further for Timothy, right? He doesn't give him explicit instructions on what to preach. He simply says, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Timothy will know at once that it is the body of doctrine which he has heard from Paul and which Paul has now committed to him to pass on to others. For instance, in this same book of chapter 1, it's identical with the deposit that we see in chapter 1. And in this fourth chapter, it's equivalent to the sound teaching, verse 3. The truth, verse 4. The faith, verse 7. It consists of the Old Testament scriptures, God-breathed and profitable which Timothy's known from childhood, together with the teaching of the apostle, which Timothy has followed, learned, and firmly believed, verses 10 and 14. And so then that same charge is laid upon the church of every age. We have no liberty to invent our message, but only to communicate the word which God has spoken and has now committed to the church as a sacred trust. Timothy is to preach this word himself, to speak what God has spoken. His responsibility is not just to hear it, not just to believe it and even obey what he hears, nor just to guard it from every falsification, nor just to suffer for it and continue in it, but now to preach it to others. It is the good news of salvation for sinners. This is an urgent message and this is what he is to preach we don't get to invent new messages we don't get to hear new words from god we don't have new revelation we have the word given once and for all to the church for the ages to preach and proclaim the good news of jesus salvation for sinners and so all true preaching conveys a sense of the urgent importance of what is being preached it's urgent The Christian herald knows, the preacher knows that he is handling matters of life and death. He's announcing the sinner's plight under the judgment of God, the saving action of God through the death and resurrection of Christ, and the summons to repent and believe. And so how can he treat such themes with cold indifference? Paul's not issuing this charge in his own name or his own authority. This urgent command to preach, preach the word, Timothy, comes from the authority of the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 4, And therefore conscious of this divine direction and approval, 
Timothy has all the motive that he needs, right? Perhaps the strongest of all incentives to faithfulness is the sense of a commission from God. If Timothy can only be assured that he is the servant of the Most High God and an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and that Paul's challenge to him is God's challenge, then nothing will deflect him from this task. I'm known for a long time, and have experienced it all afresh this month, that the primary preacher wears a giant target on his back. We've talked about it before here. This is the primary battleground for the church to hear the proclaimed message of God, the word that sinners need salvation, and they can have it on Jesus Christ. And it's very easy to succumb to temptation for laziness, to succumb to temptation to run away, to not deliver the words of life, to hold back those things that need to be said. But Paul calls us in a charge under the presence of God, verse 1 of chapter 4, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, that is where the charge comes from. And so I know that my charge to preach even this one week comes in the presence of God. And there's nothing that can deflect me from delivering these words. The same I pray is true every week that I get to preach and I know is true when Matt gets to preach. And so this urgent preaching, this proclamation, Paul adds, must continue in season and out of season. A different translation presents it this way. He says to press it home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. I think that helps give some scope to what we're trying to understand, to press it home. To press it home. We're going to talk about some, of the, some more of the effects of preaching, but this is certainly one of them. And we're going, to, we're going to double down on this a little bit later. Pressing the word home is my job, is, is Matt's job, is Greg's job, whoever occupies this pulpit, whether elder or not, is to press it home into the hearts of the congregation. When it's convenient when it's not convenient, on all occasions. And so the occasions that Paul has in mind are probably uh, welcome or unwelcome, right? Not for the hearer so much as for the speaker. One would say or assume that your presence here is simply the welcome for the word to go forward into you. That may not always be the case, but it is certainly probably for the speaker, the translation of the NEB margin emphasizes this. He says, be on duty at all times, convenient or inconvenient. I think that captures primarily what we experience. Because I, I know some of you have wondered why it seems like Matt, myself, and Greg are, are always on. <laughs> why are we always on? Why are we, uh, you, you may think or know that we're like always on duty, that kind of thinking as well. I mean, we have to ask the question, how did the need arise for Matt to need a, an extended time of rest right now? I think this is a large part of it, and I think this may even be most of it. We elders, particularly, are to be constantly looking for opportunity for the Word. Constantly. Constantly looking for opportunity for the Word. We are always on. One of the biggest struggles here is our, I say, are, me included, tendency to want to separate the secular from the sacred. 
So when you come to church, yeah, the, the, the pastor should be on, right? But when we run into you at the grocery store, when we go out to eat, when we're just hanging out before or after, I, you don't have to be on, pastor. You, you get your chance when it's time to preach. You don't have to cut. We are always on. When you think about the nature of being an elder, feeds into this. It, I'm not, we would never say that the, the office of elder has more value than any other job that God could possibly give. There is no distinction in that sense. However, there is a different gravity. There's a different responsibility that we would maintain. And so while we don't have more value before God, we don't earn in that kind of sense any more than you do by your faithful work. There is a different sense of gravity that it is not replicated anywhere else on earth. In this one sense, most of you won't lose your job if you have some kind of moral failure. You won't have your provision taken away. You won't be barred from service. You can make a mistake and largely recover from it. For the elder, their fitness for office is based on their character. And we're not perfect. But if we are not living ongoing repentance and if we are not above reproach, then we are not fit for office. And we should be removed. The character of the elder has nothing to do with the legitimacy of the word, but it has much to do with the delivery of the word. As we talked about several weeks ago in fasting, I, I had to confess my uh, lack of stewardship of my body in the past. But I've shown you ideally by Hebrews 13.7 that you can see the grace of God in my life over this past year as we are moving forward. Now you can look to me and emulate my faith. That is the call of an elder, and it's a heavy burden. Because it's not just our own character that turns then to you guys as well and the responsibility for souls. In Hebrews 13.17, we are the ones that have to give an account for those that we shepherd. Not just what you did, your soul. There's no other occupation on this planet that is responsible for the souls of people short of parents. And even then, you don't ultimately give an account for their soul. Think about then the nature of preaching, the work that goes into it. It's different than just regular teaching. We can't just make the text happen. We rely on the inspiration of the Spirit to help us understand with clarity these verses, to understand with clarity and specificity how it, how it applies to this particular body and to you individual people. You can take this one passage and you can preach it a thousand times and they're all different, while faithful, different. The burden that comes in from the temptation and the assault of the enemy, and preparing for preaching. I'm by myself in the office this past month. I've had so much more focus and time apart from conversations with Matt. Yet I have found myself with less time than I previously had. Things come up. Things must be done. And as I become the primary preacher this past month, the enemy is after me. I know that. That's why I've asked for your prayers. And finally, when we talk about shepherding, We've talked about this a little bit this past Wednesday in our counseling class. The idea of the weight of relationship in pastoring and shepherding. 
the nature of shepherding and that we are responsible for your soul and we are supposed to speak into it. And so we don't want to waste opportunities. That's why we're always on. We are looking for a way to help you see the truth and the reality of the word and how it affects your every day. We don't want you to live in a gospel gap where you know what the gospel did for you in the past. You know what it holds for you in the future, but you don't understand the way that the gospel affects today. We don't want you to languish there. We want you to see the power of the gospel for how you live your life from parenting to your marriage, to your communication, to listening, to fasting, whatever it may be. We want you to see and savor God day by day and moment by moment. And this takes a great weight when you factor in relationships. Not every sheep wants to hear that message at all times. It is often unwelcome. And there are sheep that leave. There are sheep that perish. There are sheep that are destroyed. There are sheep that are taken. And each one of those is a deep relationship and a deep concern for the soul. It is a unique office, and I don't primarily preach that for myself. I want you to see the office that I simply occupy. See, when we talk about preaching, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And this office will continue, whether I'm in it or not. This office has been, and it will be, until Jesus comes back, filled by qualified, godly men who love Jesus and love his flock. And so it doesn't matter whether it's Rusty Johnson or Greg Hall or Matt McBee. You trust the word, and this office stands as a beacon and a place of safety for the congregation. Now, the pastor can't simply give an urgent message any way he wants. He doesn't get to simply just drop the truth. He has to apply it. It has to go very specifically, as we talked about even with shepherding. And so how is the preacher, how is the elder particularly supposed to go about delivering this urgent message? Paul gives us three easy ways, and then a final commentary on really the, uh, the character about it. He says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's talk about those first three things first. In these three words, reprove, rebuke, exhort, you'll find a manifold different uh, interpretations depending on what translation you have. But what I want you to see is this can kind of be a classification of three different approaches. You have kind of an intellectual approach, a moral approach, and an emotional approach. Some people are tormented by doubts and they need to be convinced by arguments, intellectual. That's, that's largely the way that I function. Others have fallen into sin and they need to be rebuked in a moral sense. And finally, others again are haunted by fears and they need to be encouraged. That would be the emotional version. You see, God's word does all this and more. And we are to apply it relevantly. We don't just drop truth bombs and hope they happen. We deliver truth, proclaiming it, and seek to help it. John Calvin says this, he says, By these words, he means that we have need of many excitements to urge us to advance in the right course. I love this. He says, For if we were as teachable as we ought to be, a minister of Christ would draw us along by the slightest expression of his will. But now, not even moderate exhortations, to say nothing of sound advices, are sufficient for shaking off our sluggishness, if there be not increased vehemence 
of reproofs and threatenings. We are not as teachable. I say we because I spend as much time in that seat almost as you do. We are not as teachable as we should be. And so sometimes it takes vehemence of reproofs and threatenings to shake us loose from our sluggishness, to call us to action, to help us see rightly that we need reproof, we need rebuke, and we need exhortation. But it's not violent in its manner, even if it is in its urgency, because he says with complete patience and teaching. With complete patience and teaching. This, this is a, a theme of, of what God has taught me over 10, 11 years of ministry. Our responsibility is to be faithful in preaching the word. The results of the proclamation are the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. And we can afford to wait patiently for him to work. Early in youth ministry, after every sermon I did, and those were in the days of being 20, 25 minutes, I just feel defeated as if I left something out, as if I missed it, as if I wasn't convincing enough, as if I was confusing. And I was encouraged so many times by one gentleman to just be faithful, preach the word. God's word will return to him in the way that he meant it to work. It will not return to him void. And so even today, as I preach on preaching, (laughs) I hope I'm not confusing. I hope that I'm not getting in the way. I hope that I'm not missing something. My responsibility is to be faithful to the word. I can't affect anything. I can be as persuasive. I can be as funny. I can be as whatever elegant and inspirational as possible. And none of that will achieve anything lasting apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, you can afford to wait. Be patient and wait for Him to work. And think about this idea of patience and this idea of legacy, of preaching. I told you I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? This is an, an opportunity to do what God has called the church to do for 2,000 years. And so I think about the legacy of preaching in my life, those giants that are even present in my life. We think about me from, I was born in a pew. Uh, my parents are up here. I wasn't really. Uh, I've been in a pew forever. Uh, but if we talk about me since like, let's say eight years old, like in here, we have people younger than eight, but we're hoping about eight, you know, they're starting to write down a thing or two from the sermon, right? We're starting to kind of register a little bit more, particularly in a sermon setting. Since I was eight, year old, eight years old, so not counting the first years, I have had 1,196 Sundays. I've missed... I mean, they might know better than me. Maybe 20. <laughs> I want to say it's like less than one a year. And so if we're talking maybe 30, I'm not trying to exaggerate. I, I'm saying that I have been in church, and it has been a, a great, great blessing in my life. And we think about the sermons that I've experienced on 1,196 Sundays. I mean, that's three times a week for much of that. Two on Sunday, one on Wednesday. I mean, in college, right, it was five to eight times a week, and this is when I was in sin and in danger of falling away. And now, when we think about the past eight years at renovation, I mean, with hour-long sermons, that's effectively three times a week, right? Uh, 
it's, it's continuing that pattern. And, you know, when you start to add all of that up, I'm approaching probably about 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hour rule where after 10,000 hours of anything, you become an expert in whatever that is. And so in a very real sense, I'm almost an expert at listening to sermons, right? I mean, it's a large part of my job for real here in my ministry to, to hear the word and to apply it in our house gatherings to help bring it home in you guys' lives individually and to critique Matt as we talk about preaching and the ministry of, of the elders at this church. And so I have a, a lot of preaching that I've been able to sit under. On my computer, I have the sermon catalog of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John Calvin, John Piper, and John MacArthur. Uh, but also uh, Chrysostom, also named John, uh, John Stott, right? Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Tim Keller. And one of my favorite things to do is when I enter in a passage in Lagos, it pulls up all of the sermons that I have, all of the commentaries that I have on that passage. And it was one of my favorite things, like for this one, um, I get to pull up sermons, and I get to see that John Piper has, has preached on this four times in his ministry. Four times. MacArthur, like eight, because that's the way he rolls. Uh, it's so cool to see these men being faithful to the Word. And it's interesting because you get to watch it over time. You see 1986, 1992, 1998, 2005, 2012. They return to these passages and preach. That is a legacy of preaching. And so when I look at my life, I see that God is faithful. God is faithful in the legacy of preaching in my life. And I'm so thankful for this grace of the pulpit in my life. It's unlike any other. It really is. From hearing as a child from Pastor Petz to Pastor Starry to Pastor Matt. Hearing the word proclaimed is a part of my legacy. It's a part of my parents' legacy, and, and it's going to be a part of my family's legacy. You'd be a fool to give it up and to not treasure it. I mean, what, here, what a gift it is to have Matt. He's a faithful and stalwart warrior for the truth. He fights for you every week. Do you recognize that? It's one of the single greatest graces in my life to have a faithful, godly preacher to work earnestly, week in and week out, to deliver the truth faithfully. And so we have patience. We know that God works over time. I have almost 10,000 sermons, and I could not recount to you a whole lot of them. But what I do have is the regular pressing in of the word into my heart when it's cold, when it's hot, pressing me. And I pray that you would have the same. And so as we bring this home, I want you to see very practically five graces in faithful preaching. What does biblical preaching actually provide? I think there's five good graces in faithful preaching. What I hope that you experience here at Renovation, hopefully under mine, but I know you certainly experience this under Matt's, the first one, to forget ourselves. To forget ourselves. One of the greatest blessings of good preaching is that it helps us in the life-giving act of self-forgetfulness. 
That was almost entirely my sermon a few weeks ago when I talked about the idea that we are kingdom citizens. If you want to get your eyes off of your kingdom, then fix them on each other. Fix your eyes on each other. Preaching should be in a giving act of self-forgetfulness. Because faithful preaching exposes our sin. And it challenges us to change. But it does so in the stanzas. The course calls us away from ourself to our Savior. It is just, it's a glorious thing for our souls to be freed from our regular self-preoccupation. Even if only for a few minutes at the sermon's climax, as we're captivated by Christ. The regular pressing to forget yourself is a grace. Number two, to fill our faith. To fill our faith. Faithful preaching refills our faith. We talked about this at the beginning. The ongoing hearing. Because personal renewal and steady state strengthening come not from giving ourselves a pep talk, but from regularly receiving the preaching of the gospel. We simply don't have the resources in and of ourselves. We cannot. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. The word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. We continue on in 1 Corinthians into chapter 15. It says that the preached gospel is not only what we've received in the past to become Christians, but it is that grace in which we presently stand and that by which we will be finally saved if we continue to receive and hold on to this gospel. And you see that same steadfast command for, for Timothy from Paul, to remain faithful, to stand and be faithful. And he's going to talk in just a minute about the fact that people will accumulate for themselves teachers who are not preaching the gospel. And what is Timothy to do anyways? Be faithful. When people don't listen, be faithful. When they go away, be faithful. When they accuse you, be faithful. It is the power of God to continue and be steadfast. Number three, to grow in grace. To grow in grace. So not only can we forget ourselves and have our faith refilled, but in preaching, listen, we are genuinely changed. I don't, I don't know why you came here today. I pray that it was to be genuinely changed. And the gospel that we preach is the fragrance from life to life or... Death to death, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. When we hear the word, particularly when it is proclaimed, we either grow or we shrivel. Our hearts either warm up or they cool down. We either soften or we become callous. There is no neutrality when the preaching sounds. There can't be. If it's about seeing and understanding God and savoring who he is, then you can't remain neutral. And no part of our life do we remain neutral. We are either living for God or living for ourselves. Tim Keller calls it sanctification on the spot. Preaching is sanctification on the spot. Being made holy on the spot. Being set apart for holy use. Sanctification on 
the spot. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All of this change, this transformation, comes from 2 Corinthians 3.18, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing Jesus. And so our preaching has to be filled with the picture of Jesus. And in doing so, when we behold Jesus, you cannot remain neutral. Your heart either softens or it becomes hard. Sure, there are takeaways and to-dos, even these practical five graces that we're giving. But they are founded in the life-changing image and relationship and reality of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, what effect is preaching having on you? What effect is preaching having on you? Are you warming or are you cooling? Because don't forget the warning. It comes right after with all patience and teaching. Verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. There's no neutrality in this. He, he uses the, the idea of itching ears. Have you ever had an itch and then you... Don't scratch it. Does it get worse or better? It, it gets worse. Some of you are starting to itch right now. Yeah, I'm seeing you guys start to, yeah. It, it, it gets worse. It gets worse. It's one of the worst things to have like a cast and have an itch inside the cast and you, you can't scratch it, right? It gets worse and worse and worse. And so if we don't deal with it, if we don't respond when we hear it, then we will grow more itchy, hardened. And it's these itching ears that end up taking us away from listening to the truth and wandering into myths. And so I have to ask the question, do you treasure preaching? Not my message, not me, not Matt. Do you, pre- do you treasure preaching? I mean, it's the Word. The Word is what we are talking about. It's what we're proclaiming. It's what we're, we're preaching. It's not my message. It's not Matt's message. It is the Word. Do you treasure that? <laughs> Does it occupy your thinking? Do you walk out of here ready to live it? Do you seize the opportunity to live by faith each week? Just think in our recent past, when else are you going to be challenged to fast? If you don't do it, then. If you don't seize that opportunity, then. You won't be challenged to do it again for a little while. When will you be challenged to work hard at listening? For the believer who sits under the faithful preaching of God's word each week is a new season to trust, to grow, to love, to know him. I've been talking lately about the journey that God has even taken me on this, this, this year. And really by month, there's a different thing that God is sanctifying me in as I repent and grow. All from the, all from the umbrella of self-control. From weight to food to anger to finances to time. Each is a new season to trust, to 
grow, to love, and to know God. Faithful preaching gives grace, and that is an opportunity to grow in grace on the spot. Can't belabor that one anymore as much as I would love to. Number four, to be equipped. To be equipped. This is not the focus. The focus of preaching is not to equip the saints. It's a danger for us sometimes. Because in planning, we'll say, all right, what does the church need? All right, what, what can we equip them with? For a teacher, I want to give you tools for you to learn and go and use. It's very tempting for me in preaching to want to simply equip, but that's not the call of preaching. The call of preaching is to proclaim the truth of Christ so that you would know him and that you would savor him. But equipping is meant to be the effect, right? I mean, it, it should be. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 26 of the same chapter, let all things be done for building up. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, God gave the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. And so because good preaching is faithful to the Bible, and the Bible is the most important source for building up the church and equipping the saints, then good preaching will equip. It just can't be the primary focus. It is an after effect because the word is what is being proclaimed and the word sanctifies on the spot and equips you for the ministry as it builds you up. And finally, the fifth one, to encounter Jesus. To encounter Jesus. The chief benefit of faithful preaching is encountering Jesus himself and enjoying him. How? Through hearing and receiving his word. Martin Luther says, to preach the gospel is nothing else than Christ's coming to us or bringing us to him. Good preaching helps us not only to forget ourselves, but to turn our gaze to the God-man, who is the only one who can satisfy our souls. He's it. In faithful preaching, we get to meet Jesus. His presence is mediated to us through His Word. The highest grace of preaching is encountering Jesus Christ, to know and adore Him and enjoy Him as our greatest treasure. So why did you come today? Why, for 1,196 Sundays, have I come to church? Did you come today to encounter Jesus? Did you come today to encounter the Word? Have you encountered Jesus this morning? Will you, like Moses on the mount, be changed by the Word, made to draw near to Him? Or like Pharaoh, be hardened. Preaching is a great, great grace. It is the primary means of grace to the church gathered. It will have its effect over time. We can trust him to work. And so be faithful in your legacy of listening to the proclaimed word. This sermon today 
as hard as I've labored on it, as much as I want to put into it, as high of hopes that I have for it, will be lost to the ages in a matter of days. The gathering of the church for faithful listening to the word will stand the test of time. The church will be built up. It is bought by the blood of Christ, and it will stand forever. So gather under the word and be transformed on the spot. Treasure of preaching because you hear the word. Jesus Christ, the word, proclaimed to you. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. Father, there are so many distractions in our world. There are so many reasons to neglect the word, to neglect even gathering here today. So Father, I pray that you would help our hearts be committed to this covenant relationship that we have with each other, to this covenant body that we stand and fall together, that we care for our own and community because we treasure the word in our community, because we stand on the proclaimed word of sinners saved by grace. Father, fashion in us hearts that enjoy meeting your son. That when the call to worship goes out at 11 o'clock, that we are gathered here together to see and know Jesus and to savor Him. That at least for an hour and a half, our hearts would be pointed towards Mount Zion. Father, I pray today for those hearts that have been softened, that You would work great growth in them. That, Father, You would fashion hearts that are more like your son, as you are transforming us into the same image of Jesus Christ that we behold. Father, I pray for those that have been hardened today. Father, you would help them see. Father, you would remove blindness, that you would remove doubt, that you would remove discouragement, that you would remove whatever it is it causes us to not trust you. And that these hardened hearts would be warmed by grace to hear the word of the living God proclaimed to them and salvation for sinners such as themselves. And that you would draw all men to yourself. And Father, we look forward to the day that we don't just get to hear the word proclaimed, but Father, we will see him as he is. Our hearts will be ignited on fire as we behold the image of the living God. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.